sermon outline so that you can follow along. Should say the covenant of the Lord on it. Since it's such a cool day today, I think we'll shorten this a little bit as we go. We'll see. So, I do want to make one quick announcement um, for those of you who hopefully got the email, saw the posting on the city, but Frank Wong has agreed to come be our new assistant pastor. So... Very excited about that. He'll start August 1st. Uh, so he has some things to wrap up at his other church at Wallace uh, Memorial PCA Church. Um, it's in College Park, uh, Maryland. So he's got some things to wrap up and pray for them. They are notifying uh, first the parents of the youth group. They're meeting with all the parents uh, this afternoon and then telling the youth group later uh, this evening. And then it'll go to the whole church. So he's pretty nervous about that. Uh, I did talk to um, Scott Bridges, who's the pastor there. He was very uh, kind and gracious and um, said he appreciated you know, how we handled it and that we were very open about it. And so uh, that was a good conversation to have. Uh, they are one of our sister churches in our presbytery. So with that said, turn with me to Exodus 24. This is often viewed as one of those boring historical chapters. The reality is it's one of the most important chapters in the entire Old Testament. So hopefully I'll be able to convince you of that as we go through. But before we begin, let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word and we do need it. We need so much. We need to be reminded of what makes God great. We need to be reminded of God's glory. We need the blood of the covenant. We need to be reminded that Exodus isn't just a history story, but a redemption story, and that Exodus points us to our Redeemer, we so desperately need the redemption he offers. So we pray this morning, by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. As some of you know, and the rest of you are about to learn, uh, I'm an advocate for the traditional wedding ceremony. Uh, there's three reasons for that. There may be more than three, but there's at least three. First, I really like them. I like the sound of the service of holy matrimony as it's found in the Book of Common Prayer. This is my copy. I am a lapsed Anglican. Um, and of course, I like the 1789 version, as originally written by Thomas Cranmer, updated into modern English in 1928. And we have to be honest, when it comes to religious ceremonies, we all shamelessly borrow from the Anglicans. That's true. Second, I think it provides a valuable service to all those who are married. Every time you hear the various parts 
of the wedding service, it should remind you of your own declarations, your own commitments, your own vows. It's a regular ceremonial reminder of the bond that you have made with one another. And third, <clears throat> and most important, it's good to know that those early Anglicans weren't just good writers of religious ceremonies, they were also good theologians who based the writing of these ceremonies on the theology of the Bible. And one of the major themes of the scriptures is the theme of the covenant. It's a critically important theme. It's why our college is named Covenant College, where Anna goes. I don't know if they told you that, but... And our seminary is named Covenant Theological Seminary. And covenant theology is about God's relationship with his people. And since marriage is a symbol of Christ's relationship with his church, we often call it covenant marriage. So when those early Anglican theologians wrote the service of holy matrimony, it contained four major parts. Those four major parts go something like this. One, here's what we're going to do. Get married. Two, now we're going to promise to get married. Three, now we're going to actually get married. And four, now we're going to remind each other we got married. Brilliant, isn't it? We're going to go over that again. The first major part of a wedding is when we say, here's what we're going to do, get married. It's usually known as the welcome and the charge. And the welcome sounds something like this. Dearly beloved, we are assembled here in the presence of God to witness and bless the joining together of this man and this woman in holy matrimony. The bond and covenant of marriage was established by God in creation and our Lord Jesus Christ adorned this manner of life by his presence and first miracle at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. It signifies to us the mystery of the union between Christ and his church, and Holy Scripture commends it to be honored by all people. That's immediately followed by the charge. While the welcome is directed to the congregation, the charge is directed to the couple getting married. And it covers a lot of the same ground letting us know this is a divine ordinance, it's established by God, and it's not just for our good, but for his glory. That's the first part. Second major part of the wedding is when we say, now we're going to promise to get married. This part is usually known as the Declaration of Covenant. And the Declaration of Covenant sounds something like this. Do you, Andrew, take Emily just... Names chosen at random. <laughs> Wait, you guys are getting married next weekend, right? Andrew and Emily, next Saturday. What a coincidence. So, do you, Andrew, take Emily, whom you hold by the hand to be your lawful and wedded wife, to live together after God's commandment in the holy covenant of marriage? Do you promise to love, respect, honor, and keep her, and forsaking all others, be faithful to her as long as you both shall live? And the man answers, I do. And after she has made the same declaration, 
The couple has now declared their intent. It means they're willing to enter into the holy covenant of marriage. But they're not actually married yet. That comes next. Well, it comes after words of wisdom brilliantly delivered by the officiating minister. <laughs> and maybe a hymn. But then we get to the most important part. And the third major part of the wedding is when we say, now we're going to actually get married. And this most important part is usually known as the exchange of vows. And the exchange of vows sounds something like this. In the name of God, I, Andrew, take you, Emily, again, just names chosen at random, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish according to God's holy ordinance until death do us part. This is my solemn vow. And then she makes the same vow, and so this is when the marriage actually takes place, at least in the eyes of God and the church. The commonwealth withholds judgment until the marriage license is signed. Don't forget the marriage license. But we're not done yet. We still have the fourth major part. Now we're going to remind each other we got married. You see, not unlike listening to a sermon, the couple is so overcome with emotion, they immediately forget what was just said. So we have a symbol for them to serve as an everlasting reminder. For most people, for most cultures, that symbol is a ring. So the man puts the ring on the third finger of the woman's left hand and holding her hand says, Emily, random name. I give you this ring as a sign of my vow and as a symbol of my abiding love and with all that I am and all that I have, I honor you. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And after she gives him his ring and they have an all too brief kiss, at least in their eyes, I say something to the effect of, now that in the sight of God, the random names of Andrew and Emily have given themselves to each other in the covenant of marriage, by the exchanging of solemn vows with the joining of hands and with the giving and receiving of rings, therefore by virtue of the authority committed unto me by the church of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the laws of the Commonwealth of Virginia, there's only four commonwealths, Virginia, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, and Kentucky. The rest are mere states. I now pronounce you, and let's not jump the gun. You have to wait till Saturday to hear the rest. So what does all this have to do with Exodus 24? You've been wondering. Well, the reality is that much of the covenant theology behind the covenant marriage ceremony is based on Exodus 24. Let's take a quick look so you don't think I'm just making this up. In Exodus 24, Moses read the law twice. The Bible says that after offering sacrifices, verse 7, then Moses took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. This is the verse that gives the book of the covenant its name, which carries us for... Um, really all the way back to chapter 19, but specifically chapters 21 to 24. And back in verse 3 we read, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. So if Moses read the law in verse 3, 
Why did he do it again in verse 7? There's at least two good answers. One is that reading the law is a necessary part of the ceremony for confirming the covenant. Moses read God's law the first time so the people would know what they're getting into. And as soon as the Israelites heard what God wanted, they decided to accept his terms. Verse 3, all the words the Lord has spoken, we will do. So cold, I think I'm going to have some of my hot tea. But even after they accept God's covenant, they need to hear the law again to confirm the covenant. The second reading of the law is an important part of the ceremony. It's read once to help the people understand what God demanded. It's read a second time so they could promise to do it, only this time they're even more emphatic. Verse 7, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. Well, that's what happens in a wedding. At the beginning of the ceremony, the bride and groom declare their intent. They make a declaration of covenant. But they're not actually married until they say their marriage vows. Something similar happened when God established his covenant with Israel. First, the Israelites declare their intent, verse 3. Then they take their vows, verse 7. And God doesn't give them a ring. Instead, he gives them instructions on worship, which are to serve as a covenant renewal ceremony. We're going to look at that in greater detail next week. But our reminder comes not in the form of a ring, but in the form of a worship service on the Lord's Day to remind us that we're in a covenant relationship with the Lord God Almighty. Exodus 6, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. So now that you have the big picture of the covenant ceremony, and now that a marriage ceremony means more to you than it did 10 minutes ago, let's turn to Exodus 24. First we see the Israelites confirm his covenant. Confirm his covenant, verses 1 through 7. When we first embarked on this long journey through Exodus, we described the book as an epic adventure. And as in any epic, there have been dramatic moments. The burning bush, the plagues, the crossing of the Red Sea, the Ten Commandments, to name just a few. But the reality is no scene is more dramatic than here, the one described in Exodus 24, where God confirms his covenant with Israel. Starting at verse 1. Then God said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and several of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. 
And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. In order for any covenant to be properly established, it has to be confirmed. This is what happens in Exodus 24. Chapters 20 through 23 set forth the terms of the covenant. Chapter 24 describes how it's ratified. The Israelites had gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai. To this point, God's been speaking to the nation generally, but now he speaks directly to Moses, calling him to come and worship. The confirmation of a covenant's a solemn occasion. Moses goes up to meet with God. This isn't the first time he's done this. In fact, it's very difficult to keep track of all the times Moses goes up and down the mountain. But that's his job. Moses is the mediator, the one who walked between heaven and earth, going between a holy God and a sinful people. And whenever Moses went up the mountain, he represented the people before God. Except this time he has company. His brother Aaron is with him. And as the father of Israel's priests. And then Aaron's sons were also there, Nadab and Abihu, who in Leviticus 10 are destroyed for offering unholy fire on God's altar. They're joined by 70 of Israel's elders, presumably the men chosen back in chapter 18 when Moses appointed elders to help him govern Israel. And they represented all the different tribes of Israel. So together, these men approach God for worship. But they're not allowed to get too close. God has made it clear that it's an awesome thing to enter his holy presence. Most of the people are not allowed to go up the mountain at all. The priests and elders are allowed to go partway up, but even they had limited access. God told them to keep their distance. Only Moses, as the mediator, is permitted to draw near. And by setting these boundaries, God's teaching his people um, to honor his holiness, that he's a great and awesome God, perfect in righteousness. We can only come close if we come the way that he's appointed. So back then, the people approached God through their priests, and especially through the prophet Moses. Today, we come only through Jesus. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. And so through Jesus, we gain access to God. No one else can go to God for us. We meet with him in Christ. And to speak of meeting with God is really to speak of worshiping God. To worship God is to come into his presence with praise. And whenever we come into his presence, we bow down and worship. That's what Israel's priests and elders did. God said, you are to worship. In Hebrew, that specifically means to bow low before someone. So Exodus 24 is the story of a worship service. The first one fully described in the Bible. It contains nearly all the basic elements of a worship service, and it sets the pattern for worship. There's a call to worship. There's the reading of God's word. There's a confession of faith. There's the sharing of a sacramental meal. All done under the oversight of Israel's elders, 
and by the servant appointed to lead public worship, all done in the presence of a holy and glorious God. That's what worship is, meeting with God. That's why God saved the Israelites, so they could worship him. Exodus 24 is the fulfillment of that promise. So in order to confirm the covenant, God's people gathered for a solemn assembly. They met at the mountain to worship God and to behold his glory. Behold his glory. That's the second blank there in your outline, starting at verse 9. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 of the elders went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instructions. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. Behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. So Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. You know, people who are skeptical of Christianity, uh, skeptics will often say, if, if I could only see God, then I would believe. But they have it backwards. God's revealed enough of himself in his word and in his creation for us to know him. But his existence still has to be taken on faith. And the gift of seeing him is only given to those who believe. So when it comes to faith, people will say, I have to see it to believe it. But God says, you won't see it unless you believe it. First you believe, then you see. And you'll see me in the person of my son when he comes in glory at the end of days. Israel's elders are granted here this great privilege of seeing that glory in advance. God gave them a glimpse of his glory. They don't say a lot about it. They talk about what's under his feet. So you, clearly you get the impression they're looking down. They're probably laying down, face the dirt, praying that God doesn't kill them. But all this is to show them what it means to be saved. The events of Exodus 24 actually tell the story of salvation. Moses and the elders start at a distance. They're separated from God by their sin. God invites them to come into his presence. He gives them his word. He atones for their sin through the blood of his covenant. And then he brings them into his presence where they glimpse his glory. It's a foretaste of heaven. Moses and Aaron, Aaron's sons, the 70 elders, they go up and see God. It's the most glorious thing they've ever seen. 
To catch even a single glimpse of God is to behold a beauty that is dazzling beyond imagination, perfect beyond thought. Seeing God was all that these men could ever want. However, they're actually given a further privilege. It says at the end of verse 11, they beheld God and ate and drank. The Bible doesn't indicate what they ate and drank any more than it tells us what they saw. Perhaps they consumed what was left of the offerings that were made, uh, that were sacrificed earlier. Maybe they shared bread and water, maybe bread and wine. Whatever they ate and drank, it was a meal of covenant fellowship. Consider how significant it is that the prophet, the priest, the elders of Israel ate and drank with God. And this happened in the context of a public worship service. Exodus 24 is a covenant worship service. The service includes a call to worship, reading of God's word, confession of faith, and a sprinkling of blood. The whole thing concluded with a sacramental meal, the sharing of food and drink that symbolizes communion with God. When first God invited the leaders of Israel to worship, he spoke to them through his word. And they responded in faith, promising to obey. But their obedience could never be perfect. So God provides a sacrifice for their sin. And finally, God invites Israel's representatives to sit down for a meal of covenant fellowship. sermon was originally supposed to be given last week when we had the Lord's Supper, but because we had Frank come in uh, and candidate, it got bumped. So sorry we lost some of the symbolism uh, there. But atonement's been made for their sin, and now they have communion with God, and they not only see God, but they ate and drank with him. And this worship service in Exodus 24 includes the ministry of both word and sacrament. It's implications for Christian worship, implications for how we celebrate the Lord's Supper. In much the same way that sprinkling the covenant blood points to baptism, sharing the covenant meal points to communion. Both sacraments are connected to the covenant. In fact, we say that these sacraments are signs and seals of the covenant. They're sacred ceremonies that confirm the covenant relationship between God and his people. Baptism marks our entrance into the covenant. The Lord's Supper marks our continuing in the covenant. We eat and drink at the table to show that we have communion with God. And by establishing a new covenant in Christ's blood, he's welcomed us as his covenant people. This is actually one of the most important chapters in the whole Old Testament. It lays out the pattern for worship. It establishes God's covenant with his people on the basis of blood. It shows how mortal men met their maker face to face and lived to tell about it. But the high point comes at the very end, when Moses enters into glory, starting at verse 15. Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. The cloud covered it six days, and the seventh day he called uh, to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. <coughs> You know, Moses has been getting closer and closer to God ever since Exodus started. He met with God at the burning bush. He spoke with God on the mountain. He heard God's voice from the cloud. 
And now with the rest of Israel's leaders, he saw God and shared a covenant meal with them. He's the mediator, the man who represents the people before God. And now God is inviting him to enter his glory. We mentioned glory many times in this series on Exodus. In fact, the series is entitled The Glory of the Lord from this chapter. God's glory is his essence, the majesty of who he is and what he's done. It's the weight of divine being and the wealth of his saving grace. God's glory is revealed in everything that he has done to save Israel. It's glorious for him to remember his covenant, have compassion on Israel's suffering, plague the Egyptians, lead his people through the sea, guide them through the wilderness, and give them his law. Exodus is a story of God doing one glorious thing after another. And that's God's plan all along. He's saving his people for his glory. And Exodus 24 ends at this climactic moment when Moses enters God's cloud. It's his unique privilege not simply to see glory or merely admire it, but actually enter it. He's drawn closer and closer to the glory of God until finally he's swallowed up inside. What happened to Moses and the elders is also the story of our own salvation. Exodus 24 reveals from beginning to end, God calls us to worship him, uh, speaking to us by his word. There's a time we were separated from God by our sin. Like the Israelites, we were lawbreakers. We have to keep our distance until God provides a sacrifice of atonement through the blood of his covenant. And once our sins are covered, we can have fellowship with God. We can sit down to eat at his table. But how does the story end? It ends with our entrance into glory. He'll welcome us into his glorious presence. And then the longing of our hearts will be satisfied and we'll see God face to face. That's the goal of our salvation. Not just to see God, not just to sit down with him, but to participate in his glory. What happened to Moses will happen to us. God will come down and lift us up into his glory. And God has come down in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, who was sent to be our savior. He came down from heaven to reveal the glory of God. The apostle John said in John chapter 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John was talking about Jesus. His point is that Jesus reveals the glory of God in his very person. And since he's the divine son of God, he's the full expression of God's glory. And like the bright cloud that settled on the mountain, Jesus came down to reveal the glory of God. So to wrap up, let's go back to the verse we skipped over. You may have noticed that, verse 8. Because it reveals the problem we have with sin that needs to be resolved for all this stuff to happen in order for us to worship, in order for us to come into God's presence, in order for us to be saved. And the only way it's getting resolved is through the shedding of blood. The shedding of blood, verse 8. See, whenever God's word is read, it calls for a response. And the Israelites responded to the reading of the law by promising to do what God said. They made it unanimous. Remember back to verse 3. 
All the people answered with one voice, said, All the words the Lord has said, we will do. They made the same promise a second time. Moses read the uh, law, and this time they're even more insistent. They said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. That's a daring promise. The people had just heard God's law, all of it. They had just heard God say they couldn't have any other gods, couldn't make any idols, couldn't lie, steal, or covet. They'd heard God's regulations for property and injury. They heard all the law's commands, many of its applications. They heard the law and all its righteousness. They know that perfect obedience is what God's demanding in every area of life. And when Moses finished reading the law, they said, let's do it. Yes, Lord, we'll obey every last word of your covenant. And apparently they're optimists or idiots. I mean, what else can explain their decision to make such a rash promise? They're natural-born sinners. God's law demands perfect obedience. There's not a man, woman, or child anywhere in Israel who's able to keep God's law. It's not that they failed here or there once in a while. They're unable to keep even a single command with perfect integrity. Idiots. I mean, I think there's lots better ways to do it. They could have said, we will obey most of the time. We'll obey lots and lots and lots. We promise. We'll obey often. We'll obey when we remember. But they said, we'll do it all. We'll obey everything. We'll keep the whole law of God. Really, how can they do otherwise? God's the creator and redeemer. He has the right to demand whatever he pleases. He's holy and just. So what he demands is always righteous. So when God gave his people the terms of the covenant, the only thing they can do is accept. Whether they're able to do it or not, keeping God's law is the right way to live. But how could they obey everything? I mean, even if we just, you know, took the first commandment, have no other gods before me, let nothing else be more important to you than God. How are they able to do that? How are they able to keep doing that? That's what brings us to verse 8. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. The blood of the covenant meant something. Animals were sacrificed. Their blood was sprinkled on the people and also on God, represented by his altar. Both parties are undertaking a covenant commitment. The covenant's not signed, but sealed in blood, which showed the whole arrangement is a matter of life and death. The blood of the covenant holds the threat of divine judgment for everyone who broke God's law. At the same time, the blood's a sign of God's mercy. God's not simply showing his people what will happen if they failed. He's also showing that there's a way for them to remain in his favor even after they've sinned. Put this another way, although the relationship God established with his people under Moses has a legal basis, it's a covenant of grace. That's shown by the sprinkling of the blood. Moses sprinkled it on the altar of God first, 
which showed the people's sins were forgiven. This is what a bloody altar always signifies, the forgiveness of sins. Atonement has been made. God has accepted a sacrifice as payment for sin. Their blood was also a propitiation, which means it turned aside God's wrath. And then the blood was sprinkled on the people. It showed that God had accepted their sacrifice. And they're now included in the covenant through the forgiveness of their sins. They were given an answer for their sins, the blood of the covenant. This is the covenant God made with his people. By the blood, they're bound to keep God's law. By the same blood, their sins are forgiven. So what's the virtue? Why do we have such a careful study of the covenant that God made with Israel? Simply this, Israel's experience at Mount Sinai shows us how to have a right relationship with God. Like the Israelites, we stand in the presence of a holy God who calls us to worship him. And like the Israelites, we're obligated to keep God's law upon the pain of death. Unfortunately, we can't keep it any better than they did. But like them, we can belong to God on the basis of blood. Blood has always been the basis for a relationship with God. The Old Testament sacrifices, including the ones that confirm the covenant, taught God's people to look for salvation to come by blood. It's preparing the way for Jesus, who showed the full significance of the old sacrifices when he shed his blood on the cross for your sins. When the New Testament talks about Jesus, it often describes his saving work in terms of blood. Romans 3.25, Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Romans 5.9, which Andy read earlier, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Ephesians 2.13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Colossians 1, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. It is by the blood of Jesus that we're justified, redeemed, reconciled, forgiven, and sanctified. We are saved by the blood, the blood of the covenant, the ultimate answer for our sins, for your sins and my sins came centuries later. Jesus Christ, on the night that he was betrayed, took the cup and he said something to a group of men who were completely saturated in the book of Exodus. They knew all about the book of Exodus. And he says to them, this is the blood of the covenant. We do it every single time we have the Lord's Supper. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for many, for the remission of sins. And Jesus is looking at his disciples. He's looking right into their eyes. He knows that they know this Exodus passage. He knows they know the significance of the blood bringing the people into fellowship with God. And he's saying, friends, that blood can't bring you fully into fellowship with God, but my blood can. Behold, my blood of the covenant, which is shed for the forgiveness of your sins. You can't worship God without that mediator. 
There's no way into fellowship with God who rules over heaven and earth, but by the name and the merits and the blood of Jesus. On the cross, Jesus Christ's blood was shed. What that means is he received the curse so we could get the blessing. He sees God. That's what he deserves because he's perfect. He fully obeyed God. We deserve to have our blood shed, but he takes our curse so we can have his blessing, which means not only are we saved by grace, but we live by grace. By faith, we're sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. By trusting in Jesus' death, we receive life, and we're ushered into a new relationship with God by the blood of the covenant. All you need is Jesus. You don't need karma. You don't need reincarnation. You don't need good works. You don't need to go to Mecca. You don't need to try harder or do better. You need Jesus. You need Jesus, and you need to be sprinkled with his blood, the blood of the covenant, the new covenant in my blood, shed for many for the remission of sins, your sins. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. Teach us the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. Grant us some inkling of the comprehension of the greatness, the height and depth and breadth of the love of God which is in Christ Jesus' blood of the covenant. Give us the faith to believe that we're saved by the blood of Jesus. And then grant that we may live like it. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.